name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hello, 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 and welcome once again to Talking Bat. Talking Bat? Middleton, you're talking rubbish. It's not Talking Bat today, it's Talking Bird. And today I am delighted to be joined by David Darrow Lambert of Birdbrain UK Limited. David, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Neil? I'm doing really good. I'm doing really good. I was so pleased when uh, you uh, said you were up for doing this because we've known each other for goodness how long? I've lost track. Oh, over 10 years now. Yeah, easily. And we've had a lot of fun together. Um, <laughs> the times that we've been together, we've done some training courses together. Uh, you helped out, well, you helped me out a lot with giving me some excellent sound recordings for the Is That A Bat book. So oh, yeah. uh, We'll talk more about you and your sound recording later on, but uh, hugely appreciate that. And wow, we've just had some, uh, we've had some good times. One of my favourite times with you, okay, is that night you took me to that place on the west side of London. Can't remember what it's called now. Chobham Heath. That's the one, yeah. Night Charles and Woodcock and Dartford, Dartford Wobbler. I was yeah. chuffed to bits, yeah, yeah. So... What have you been up to today? Have you been doing much? Uh, I was looking for a barn owl nest. So I uh, discovered one breeding pair, uh, a dead barn owl, and then an empty area as well. So it was good fun. Good stuff, good stuff. And you're in a, you're in a hotel room at the moment. I'm kind of uh, just I'm... looking behind you and it looks a bit... Uh, are you at home? No, no, I'm in a hotel room. <laughs> I, would have, I would have a better picture than that on the wall too. That was straight away. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be filming it with some pillows in the background either. That's, that's kind of what I think. Or my empty about. water bottle there either. Uh, <laughs> nice one. Loving it. Loving it, loving it. Right, let's, 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 let's get deeper into this, David, uh, if you're good to go. Um, what I want to, to start, well, to start off, uh, and uh, up here, when myself and Daylene and Aaron are talking about you, okay, uh, you often get referred to as DDL. I don't know if anybody else refers to as DDL. Everyone does. Okay, so that's not just us. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. And listen, sorry, another thing before we get started properly. Um, I've got a proper loud Hawaiian shirt on again tonight uh, in honour of yourself. And uh, <laughs> and you kind of you went a little bit more than what you did last time we were online together. But... I think I've still outshirted you again, though, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we'll do have. the flamingo joke this time, OK? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave the flamingo joke uh, for the time being. Have you got birds on that one? Or... Uh, these are like palm trees. Palm, hold on, just get there. All right, OK, nice one. Very nice, good it's stuff. a subtle version of my flamboyant shirts. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. You were just... Uh, yeah, you're supposed to be the loudest one in this interview, not me. <laughs> oh, my this one yesterday, so I couldn't re-wear that. I, like, <laughs> I want to feel the part. I've had a shave, I've had a wash, I've like got a new shirt on, I feel, you know, sweet. I got a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, let, let's, let's go back to, um, where are we? Let's go back to the, the slide. 
let's talk about DDL, David, the early days. Yeah, so- How, um, why, when, who, where <laughs> did you get involved in nature, bird watching, whatever you could, would have called it when you were much shorter, much younger. Tell me a bit about this. Yeah, so you got to go back to like the 70s when uh, my mum, my dad and my sister were like well into bird watching and they would often go out and I wasn't interested at all. So there's this really infamous story of being at Minsmere and my mum, my dad and my sister, I think were in the Isle of Mearhide. And it was in the days when the Isle of Mearhide was just like a, a shed on stilts. It was not that glorious. And I was outside and I was throwing stones around because I was really bored. I was like, I don't want to be here. I was throwing stones wherever I could, this way, that way. And as they were coming out, the warden came along and told, gave me an earful for throwing stones around the place. They said, if I didn't stop, they're going to throw me out the reserve. So I was like, ah. Oh. So then you only rolled on like a few more years. And I was at my uh, uh, junior school, Bruce Grove Junior School in uh, Tottenham. And Miss Anderson, who was this really nice teacher, and she was quite, quite strict as well. She said, we're going to Rye Mead RSPB Reserve. And I was like, oh, okay. So we got on this train, which was the exciting thing. Went up there and we walked into the reserve and there was like a warden. Uh, I think his name was Kevin. He had a big old beard on him, big black beard. And he was outside this little like wooden shed that had like four different leaflets. That's how RSPB reserves were. There's no, there was no teas, no coffees, no toilets. The palms you needed, welly boots, could otherwise you got lost in them. There was so much mud and chaos in that respect. And he said, we're going to not go in the reserve. We're going to walk down the towpath along the River Lee. So he takes us down this towpath and he starts showing us muddy prints of coot and moorhen in the mud. And you could see on the moorhen, there these long spindly claws. And on the coot, he had webbing between each little section yeah. of each toe. Yeah. And he was saying that the moorhen will grab. And he said, first of all, he said the coot. The coots dive underwater to avoid a predator because they've got this webbing and enables them to dive. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. They said the moorhens like grab the vegetation with their claws, pull themselves down and only expose their bill and their nasal groove above the waterline so they can breathe and the predator can't get to them. And I was like, wow, this is so fascinating. So then we went in the hide and like there must, there was 30 plus kids from Tottenham making a whole load of noise in this hide, yeah? And the kingfisher whizzed by and we were like, oh, like that. And then apparently the train broke down on the way home and we got back like an hour late. And apparently the first thing I said to my dad was, we need to go bird watching every day. And wow. so it was like, then he took me out every day of every weekend from there on in, basically. And all the time I was trying to identify birds and see new things. And I remember very clearly, every time I saw a bright looking male house sparrow, I'd say to my dad, I think I've seen a tree sparrow. He's like, no, it's probably just a house. No, I'm sure it's a tree sparrow. And then like a few weeks later, I remember going down Tottenham Marshes with him. And there was like the allotments at the south and there was this long line of house sparrows in there. You don't get them anymore. And there was yeah. a tree sparrow sitting in with them. It's oh my God, that's a tree sparrow. And I was like, I was bananas. I think that was the day in which I saw my like 98, 99 and 100th species. It went something like reed bunting, little grebe, shoveler. And I was like, oh, I'm on 100 birds. I remember that being very clear. Yeah. How, how old were you then, roughly? Uh, were you still at primary school? Yeah, uh, junior school. So I was about nine, eight, nine, ten, something like that. That, that's amazing. I so always think it's eight, and my dad yeah. says it's I was older. And I know it was eight, but he, was, he kept a diary, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I started birding. I, I know precisely how old I was eight when I started birding. And yeah, like like what you've just said, because you've just reminded me of something. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember our 
very first YOC trip to the Eithen Estuary, which is an estuary about yeah. 20 miles north of Aberdeen. Yeah. And I must have ticked something like 30 plus new species that day. And that just doesn't happen now, unless you go overseas to a place you've never been before. But even when you do that, getting 30, 40 new species any day, anywhere in the world would be a pretty strong ask, I would have thought, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, bird watcher, twitcher, birder, ornithologist. How would you describe yourself? Uh, it depends on what I'm doing, and also it depends on who I'm talking to. Right. So, like okay. for example, like today, definitely an ornithologist. Kind of like reaching more into the consultancy side of things. I'm more of a consultant than an ornithologist. Yeah. And then it's like I was training the person I was with today, so I was doing training as well and then I'm a we went to uh Minsmere later on to have a look around there so I'm really a, a birder wandering around but then if someone asked me a question I didn't go through my whole ornithological catalogue and give them an answer on what's going on and the birds and he was asking me about molt sequences on birds and can you sex black-tailed godwits and you know I was explaining to them about the different calls all the turns are making because it was yeah. common turn in the sky little turn and sandwich turn and they're all at different levels so that you know the sandwich turns making this big loud sound yeah and then it's like I was looking through the black-tailed godwits to try to find one of these continental races and I'm really being a twitcher there to be honest yeah, yeah. I also yeah. consider that that's part of my training and I'm not testing myself and I'm not trying to identify everything I can see Count all the birds because I'm always counting the birds because it's a great practice to do. Then I'm looking at individual plumage traits and things like that. And it was a color ringed black tailed godwit. It was on one leg. So I didn't know what the combination was on the other leg. So I was like, oh, I can't make any notes on that. And right. then also I was taking video of some of the turns because I'm going off to do a training course. And I thought, this is great. And there was um, a sequence of um, a black tailed godwit just feeding. And I thought, this is great. And when I'm doing my training course and I'm talking about how you count birds, I'm going to show this video and say, how many birds do you see? And there's going to be at least two, uh, there's two right answers to this. Because the first answer is correct, is there's one black-tailed godwit. Okay. But in the background, you can see like the shadow of the water. You can see loads of turns flying by. So okay. I need to count all the turns and have an exact number of all the turns that are taken off in the background going to the right. Then there's another yeah. group that goes to that, but you can just see their reflection. I think this is great because I'll show this to the, the trainees and they'll go, oh, there's one black-tailed godwit. And I go, any other answers? And then someone may go, 100. And I go, that's very good because you've actually noticed what's going on in their background. And when you're being an ornithologist or you're doing a survey or whatever, you need to kind of have your eyes in all directions. So as you're halfway through a count and something more important comes in, your mind's got to jump into that. So I jump around all of this all of the time. Yeah, you know, yeah. the other day I went down to all marshes in Kent and then news came through that the albatross in Yorkshire, uh, black bad albatross at Benton Cliffs in Yorkshire was there. Yeah. And said, my mate said to me, we should go for that. I went, no, 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 let's go. So that's yeah. four hours from my house, four and a half hours. So we had to drive home to my house, drop his car, which was an hour's journey, then pull him into my car, then do the four and a half hour drive up to Benton Cliffs. I saw the, the albatross, my first ever albatross, and I was like, so excited and then wow. yeah. taking lots of pictures and at the same time there's orcs whizzing around in all directions and i think oh, i need to take some pictures because these are really good educational for teaching people how to identify orcs in flight you know the yeah. armpits are yeah. different between the razor and the guillemot and then also i was thinking about um the aging sequences of gannets as well that's very good to point out to people so when people are doing more detailed studies and i talk to them about the resolution when you when you're doing a survey how 
how detailed a resolution do you need, really? I like that word. I'm trying to get that trendy. This could be the new trendy word in ornithology, resolution. <laughs> so it's like you, you go on the basic level, you just count the one, how many birds you see. Then the other, the next level of resolution is what direction are they all going in? Then the next resolution is, you know, can you age any of the birds flying around? And what are they doing yeah. after they've gone off? And then the other resolution is what are all the other birds doing in the air at the same time? So yeah. the maximum resolution is you're trying to record everything all at once which as you know, at times can be absolute madness and you've yeah. got to go down the priority route. So you go down the priority route of what's a priority species? What is your survey about? Is it about say kitty weights going past them and see that becomes a priority? But if something even more important suddenly appears that's not a targeted species, but you know that that is really important to this project or whatever you're studying, you've got to be able to switch to that one and then jump back again and then keep track on what's going on and have two stopwatches going at the same time. So you've got exact timing of how long they've taken to go through your your, your zone that you're watching or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. it's really, there's a mass of stuff and it's very hard for me to focus on one of these whenever I go out anywhere. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, compatibility.co.uk Thank you. But they've got an example there where, listen, you were on an out-and-out Twitch to see that albatross. Yeah, out-and-out Twitch. And, and, you know, I'm I'm about, what, three-and-a-half-hour drive from it. And and I was was tempted, but I'm just too darn busy this last week and this week so I've done anything about it and I twitched a safe wheel uh, a couple of weeks ago oh, nice. <laughs> so I was kind of thinking oh, I've, I've done enough uh, but 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 you were an out and out twitch there mate but but you didn't just go and take the bird and leave you then found yourself in that environment and you thought right I'm mm. here I've seen the bird but now there are mm. all of these other things that I can get out of the trip, uh, you know, in order to either educate yourself or help educate other people. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of taking the two things together. And and I would imagine where you where you live, um, it's not as if you're surrounded by uh, lots of uh, cliff nesting hawks and gannets and stuff. That's not really your part of the world. So <laughs> no, that, I mean, that was sensational. And the other thing I missed out the story, which was good, was apart from seeing lots of my friends up there, which was great, yeah. uh, was that the albatross had flown towards us. It was quite distantly. And then this herring girl made this funny alarm calls, and I was thinking, why is it doing that? There's no predators around. It's looking down. I was thinking one of the albatrosses has gone by, and then it came. All of a sudden, the herring girl started doing the alarms again. And I said to the people around me, I said, I wonder if the albatross is down there because the herring gull spooked. And then suddenly the albatross just raised up right in front of us and like glided around a few feet away and then dropped down again. And it was just like, it's trying, like even that is like a good story to tell to get people because I don't know how a herring gull is going to react to an albatross. Yeah, but because you, you, in, this, in this part of the world, uh, herring gulls don't really feel threatened by anything really, do they? Yeah. You know, it's, it would be... You know maybe unusual to hear hear yeah. that yeah so it's it's trying to get people to be aware of well i'm thinking okay when i do my next bit of training or if i'm giving a lecture or whatever it is there's always these little juicy nuggets so when you throw in make it really real to people and they really understand that even for, for me and for anyone else 
you're learning all the time. Every day is a school day. There's always some little juicy nugget out there waiting for you to stumble across, whether or not it's something simple, like a house mirror given a very different call, or not it's a different bird behavior or something like that. Or yeah. realizing that the albatross is going to be spooked by a black, uh, the herring girl is going to be spooked by a black browned albatross. Yeah. It's all of that, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's the kind of thing also. Um, and I remember, uh, I'll, I'll credit this to Andy Hargreaves, uh, a friend of mine that lives in the, in the drama area of uh, France. And I remember uh, very, very well, uh, we were out birding down in southern France, I don't know, this maybe 20 years ago. And with a whole load of uh, house martins and swallows oh, and yeah. stuff uh, flying above us, you know, making a noise, doing what they normally do, and then all of a sudden they just all shut up. Mm. Yeah, and he just immediately said, "No, there's a raptor about." And I kind of looked at him and goes, "Well, how do you know this?" And he said, "Well, did you not just hear all of these birds just simultaneously just shut up and melted into the environment?" And sure enough, I uh, can't remember what raptor came over, probably a sparrow hawk or whatever, just flew by. And I just thought, yeah, that is, that's somebody that's uh, looking at things uh, from a wider perspective than someone that's just out using their eyes. Yeah. And it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. does, does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. I remember leading a walk in Victoria Park and uh, I said, oh, um, the birds are going a bit quiet here. I'm pretty sure that there's a sparrowhawk or something like that knocking yeah. around. And about two seconds later, the sparrowhawk like wheels up and around. And the people were like, wow. And I was like, well, you get the change in the environment. You know, sometimes birds go a lot quieter and get a bit more quiet and a bit more, you know, reduce the volume and just not make so many calls. And it's got that aroma for me of the smell of like there's danger around. They're nervous. Yeah. They've become nervous. Occasionally you get the distress calls as well. And it's all those kind of indicators that's great to pass on to all sorts of different people to yeah. educate them, to make them more aware of what's going around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you enjoying this? This is okay. Are you... It's perfect. Right? It's always good. to. Like I said to you earlier, I said it never feels really like I'm working when I'm with you, which yeah. is like two people talking to us. I feel uh, so relaxed. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, so this, is, this, is, this is good. And, it's, and we're going we're gonna to get to, into quite deep into some of the uh, particular uh, things that uh, you're very interested in or you excel at, etc. So if somebody was asking me, David Darrell Lambert, what, what does he do? What is he? Goodness, there are so many, there are so many labels I could put on you. Okay, consultant, lecturer, trainer, photographer, illustrator, which is not up there, but on a slide we'll talk about uh, later on sound recorderist, if that's a word, author, YouTuber. Uh, you regularly appear on uh, radio and you've made a few TV appearances as well, including, from memory, a Christmas Day special of uh, the natural history of the grounds around Buckingham Palace, I think, from memory. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that must have been uh, pretty cool. Do you want to... Are you able to talk much about, about that? How did you get involved with that? Did you get to meet the Queen? <laughs> <laughs> no, I never, meet the, never get to meet the Queen. Not yet, anyhow. Yeah. Maybe, after, maybe after she's seen this, maybe she'll introduce herself yeah. to me. Maybe. Did, did you reckon there's a knighthood coming your way? Are you like, Sir David? <laughs> that, that's got a great ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that, that happened in an odd way because... Um, 
uh, one of the people at Buckingham Palace had messaged um, the London Natural History Society and said they're looking to find out if there's anyone interested in visiting, carrying out regular bird surveys in uh, the gardens. And uh, I messaged them straight away. I was like, yeah, I'll be up for that. That sounds very interesting to do. And they came back to me and said, oh, we see you're a professional and uh, you realize that there's no money involved. And I was like, no, that's fine. You know, I thought it'd be good to have a sniff around and have a look and see what's going on. Yeah. And then basically within a short period of time, a few months, it turned out that this TV company wanted to do a whole um, series, a documentary on the wildlife there. And they wanted to use me. So I was like, well, that's fine. Use me straight away. It's good publicity. Uh, and uh, it was great fun to do. So it was one of my, no, it was about, I've done quite a few little snippets for TV news and stuff like that, talking about birds. So this is probably about number 10 or something like that thing yeah. I was working on. And it was, it was great fun to do. It was good fun. It was interesting. You know, when they asked you to, there was one famous bit where I found really early breeding uh, tawny owls, like it was beginning of March and they had really large young, like almost lost all their downy feathers, able to fly around a bit. And they asked me to explain about what happened. And I said, when I was walking along, I did this strange call. And I was thinking, that sounds like a juvenile tawny. And I looked around and there's these eyes looking at me really close. And I was like, oh my, and then it was the second. I was like, oh. So I was all animated <laughs> as I would be normally. And then the, we finished. And then the producer said, how was that to the sound guy? And the sound guy goes, oh no, the lorry went by too loud. You'll have to redo it. And he said, can you remember what you said? I went, no, not at all. I mean, I just opened my mouth and had it come to It's not like I've got a script here or anything like that. Yeah, and like, yeah. you asked me five minutes later what we spoke about. And I'd be like, I have no idea. I don't know. I just opened my mouth for Neil and bosh, hey, it comes. So that was interesting to do. And then I was getting more used to where they asked you, oh, can you walk across from by those trees and then come straight towards the camera? And then they go, oh no, actually, can you walk across straight to the camera then? Stop, look up, raise your binoculars, and then write something down and then carry on. And then we're like, oh, can you walk along and then raise your binoculars, note something down, pull your camera out, take a picture, and then walk on. And you're like, okay. And then can you do that and do the other side of the camera, not to the left, but to the right? And okay. So you do like six takes. Yeah. And even yeah. when you, like, I've, last year I've done a thing to do with Birdsong uh, for BBC London News. It was like, there's a bit where I walk through the trees with a pre with a presenter and towards the camera, and that was about five or six takes to get exactly how the man wanted it. So we went left of the camera, then she shined the torch, and then she shined the torch at me, and then to the camera, and then it was the other side. So it's like when you see these bits, and like when I appear in there in, on the program, and I'm in there for maybe 15 minutes at the most. Yeah, but, two it's, programs. but it's probably taking you all day to film. Yeah. No, that, that 15 minutes was like 10 days or 11 days of filming. Oh, that's even worse then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the bit for the BBC News, I was on for about a minute and a half, and that was two hours of filming. Yeah, but should but, I get in pit for? Well, I did. Well, the, oh, okay, the let's not get into that. Let's not go into that. On some occasions, you're not getting paid for. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so. I mean, I see a lot of this as not like a, a money earner. It's more publicity for me and getting me used yeah. to being in front of cameras. So if at one stage they go, we want to do a documentary or series and have you more involved. I'm like, okay, I'm used to I'm used to the feel of how it goes. And it's the same with the radio stuff. You know, they they contacted, and I phoned in actually because they were talking about, uh, I think it was Great Spotted Woodpeckers. And they were discussing whether or not the drumming was a song or not. And someone was saying it was, wasn't, it was a drill. And I phoned up and said, no, it's, it's, I'm an ornithologist. And I explained in detail. And then the producer said, oh, we'll get you back in a couple of weeks. 
to talk about birds again. Nothing happened for months. And then all of a sudden they said, oh, can you come in next Saturday and talk about birds? So I came in and spoke about birds, which was fine, and where to go bird watching. And I'd set stuff up on my website, website so people would go and look at it afterwards. Yeah. And then it became a regular thing where I then said, I could supply you with some sound records. And oh, that'd be great. So then I come in and uh, play sound recordings. And there was a really famous moment with, uh, I can't remember her name. Oh, this presenter on BBC London, she'll kill me for this. And um, she said, oh, we've got, she said, um, we've got you. It was before it went on air and I was sitting there with my uh, youngest daughter. And she said, uh, we've got you on air. We've got all your recordings. She said, that's great. She said, uh, we've got your thrush. I'm thinking, thrush? And goes, she goes, Robin. I was like, oh yeah, that's Robin. And then said, so we've got this other one. She goes, Chevalier. And I was like, Chevalier? Chevalier? I said, what's that? And I looked at her and looked at my daughter, looked at her again. She went, oh, Chavala. <laughs> That was Joe Good on BBC Radio London. So it became this in-joke with my friends. It was like, I posted it on, 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 on Twitter and I made a recording of it. And it was like Chevalier. So when I'm out with them, sometimes I go, there's four Chevalier over there. And then there was a day we were bird watching in Northern France and we went past this warehouse and it said Chevalier. And we're like, Chevalier? <laughs> oh. Stuff. So you, you get these really uh, funny moments. It's just, you, you know, the more you used to get to doing these things, it's just more yeah. relaxed you are. And if something happens, it happens. If you diverse and go off and you can have all your script ready, everything all set up and you're like, oh, we're going to talk about this. And you go off on some tangent, then the airtime's done. And you're like, okay, that's fine. I'll carry on. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I haven't done, I mean, I've only done TV, what, three times and uh, I've done radio a couple of times. Uh, but uh, yeah, I won't go into I won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> but there was one of the TV experiences just was not good at all, and oh, really? uh, yeah. And after that one, I, I kind of said to myself, you know, if I'm ever asked again to work with this lot, the answer is going to be one hundred percent no. <laughs> but that's a different story altogether. Um, right, let's see what else we've got to talk about. So we're going to talk a little bit about your consultancy. We're going to talk about the photography and sound recording and these things uh, later on. But I want to talk um, very uh, well, not briefly, but um, you know, concisely is probably a better way to describe it. Uh, your business, Bird Brain UK Limited. Uh, tell us a bit about what the business is, what you do, uh, what's your uh, unique selling points, whatever, mm. you know, just mm. tell us about Birdbrain UK. Yeah, so um, this all happened many years ago. So when I was 16, I left school and uh, a friend of mine was being paid money to walk around the local reservoirs and plot down on a map all the wildfowl and the numbers and what they were doing and eight yeah. sexes of them. And he didn't, apparently didn't enjoy it. And he said, do you want to get paid £15 for three hours to walk around the reservoirs in the late 80s? And I was like, yes, straight okay. away. So I've done this about four or five times. And then nothing really happened with that. And then um, I was involved with meetings with Natural England to do with Walthamstow Reservoirs. And the initial meetings had all the different users of the water of the reservoirs. So had the fishermen and the bird watchers. Obviously, fishermen and bird watchers don't always mix very well. And the first two meetings got heated and then like lots of people dropped out, and there was just only me and a few of the fishermen left. And Natural England turned around to me and said, uh, we want you to go around the reservoirs and count all the breeding wildfowl and uh, here's some money for it. And it was good money. And I was like, oh my God, this is great money. So every year I got to walk around my patch for three years, 
count up all the ducks and geese, send them a, a table with it all in. And they were happy. And I was like, well, this is good. Maybe I can get some more money out of this. Yeah. And at the same time, a friend of mine uh, had moved out of London and he'd been doing work for an ecologist, but then said, contacted me and said, can you do some research on black red starts in this area? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Looked it up and going from a bird report, sent him it and got like 40 quid. And I thought, well, this is all right. And then he kept throwing me little nuggets. And um, so I started then doing these breeding bird surveys and it started off with people telling me, oh, can you go and do one survey at this site? Can you do two surveys? And then I would turn up and they would say to me, I'll go whatever time you want. And I'll turn up early in the morning. And I was always turning up and they would say, oh, it doesn't matter when you turn up. And I was turning up and thinking, the birds are already singing. Why am I here so late? I should be getting there early. So then I started thinking about what method to do it. And at the same time, I was picking up more and more work. So I had to give a name to myself. So that's how I came up with Birdbrain UK, uh, Birdbrain UK. And uh, I I, uh, bought the company name as well, because I thought, well, when I need to trade as a limited company, I need to have that on the standby ready. Don't want some other Herbert doing it instead of me, you know? So I then started doing all these surveys. I then developed my own methodology for carrying out breeding bird surveys. And then um, people were asking me to do other stuff like winter bird surveys, specific species surveys as well. Or if you really want a good picture, you need to widen that because the, the ducks aren't there just in November to February. They're there throughout the year. And like, for example, um, in, the, in the London area, we get piles of male tufted duck coming in in the autumn from July till September to molt. And some of the reservoirs can have two or three thousand of these birds sitting there, which makes them a nationally important site straight away. So yeah, it was yeah. really understanding from my bird experience as a birder and watching the local patch, how to apply that in the commercial world. And that's how I really built it all up and gained all my knowledge from doing other stuff. And then I would go out bird watching and not really just look at the birds and say, oh, this is all nice. I'd count them and look at what's going on. And I'd go and do specific things on my own, like uh, monitor high tide counts. And when you go and do your first high tide count, you turn up and like, you turn up for exactly high tide on the first one you do and the birds are sitting there then they disappear off and then you then if it's a consultant you're thinking well that's not really counting everything i should get there way before when the first ones turn up and see yeah. what happens and when you do that yeah. kind of thing you realize that the birds are coming and going all the time and that yeah. at one point there's 50 avocet next point there's 50 black tail godwits and the numbers are up and down and you need to be monitoring this on a regular basis to get a real good picture and if you turn up at high tide on sortings where curly you are and you count for all the curly that you can see, you get like 200. And then as the tide goes out and they all pick up and go off, you suddenly realize that there's like a thousand there yeah, and yeah. your counts well out because you can't see everything. So yeah. there's really understanding that when someone says to you, what's the importance of this site? What's going on? You need to help bring your whole breadth of knowledge of going out and looking at all these different birds and practicing yourself, doing your own training to work out what's the best me- method to apply and that's really i think what a lot of people like is i've got a lot of this experience and they say to me oh we need to look at whatever it is can you have a look and i remember once a, a client called me up one evening and said can you look at a report on basra reed warblers uh, in their breeding range on this big lake where there's just this one reed bed where they are and i was like yeah 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 that's fine and she said i've got no money for you but can you have a quick look at it and i was like yeah that's fine so I was really excited. I was like, I've never seen a basset reader. How much research can I do in about 20 seconds? So I've got all this information, discovered that there was hardly any information on it. They were all based on um, uh, great reed warblers. And I think this report had said that the reed bed was only important May to June. And the rest of the time, it was fine to do whatever you wanted to it. And I was like, no, this is like bad news. It's a massive reed bed. 
they're probably in much earlier than that. They might do two brews, and if it's a good season, they could even potentially do three brews. They need yeah. to be aware about this. It's a big rebed out in the Middle East. So that means it's probably a heart, a magnet for roosting hirundines at least, and probably herons breeding. That's, you know, it's probably, it's probably about a week in the year in which you could go in there and not disturb anything. And the rest of the time, it's been utilised by stuff in the winter, the spring, the autumn, the summer, completely. So it was, she said to me, she said she didn't feel like that report was very good. And that's why she came to me to research it and do it. So yeah. it's being able to understand where you can get information from and what you can do. So that's how I developed the consultancy side and the, the survey stuff. And of course, like when I go to a reserve, I don't just look at it as in the reserve. I think, well, how are they managing this site? And I talk to the wardens and say, I was at uh, Frampton and I said to them, I said, how do you monitor how many breeding wages you've got? And he was explaining the methods that they use and they have to adapt and change it because it's a public site. You just can't always go can't blanch charging through the undergrowth because there'll be Joe Public on the side going, well, he's disturbing all the birds. This can't be right. We need to report it. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it's understanding what you can do and where. Yeah. And understand that there are those limiting factors on any site you could end up doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and also it's like, you know, when I worked on the Olympics, they wanted to put in two wind turbines, Olympic Park in London. And I was saying to them, look, you may not find there's any really sensitive breeding birds or birds flying up and down that are going to affect the turbines. But if you go and say this is the greenest uh, uh, Olympics ever and have two turbines that are chopping up Canada geese going through, yeah. Joe Public isn't going to, or, or, or Joan Public, I should say, yeah. isn't yeah. going to be bothered by the fact that Canada geese are introduced uh, invasive species. They're going to be bothered that it's just slaughtering loads of birds willy-nilly. Yeah. And so therefore, yeah. you need to be aware of that to be able to advise a client and that sort of thing. And I also have clients who are much more conservation-based. And so they want me to survey a nature reserve, give it a breeding bird assessment, and tell them how they can improve it and do that. So you've got to, like... You've got two sides of it all, really, in the consultancy yeah. thing, doing the surveys. Yeah. And the training happened because, uh, and the lectures, because I was the chair of the London Bird Club, which was part of the London Natural Society. And the chair was fairly old. I was the youngest by many decades. There was okay. someone who was about the same age as me about four or five decades before. Okay. And so I came in as this fresh blood. And um, I was told that because the indoor meeting uh, organizer was quite shy, I had to pre present the people giving the lectures. So I, I came in once and the guy said, oh, I've turned up to give my lecture on nesting birds, nest boxes, but I've brought the wrong carousel. So it's going to be slightly different. So I was like, well, this is very good. And then I went to one that was talking about wader identification. And he spoke very little about wader identification. He spoke about bill lengths, habitats. And I thought, well, I could do a better job. So I started doing a better job uh, using images of Google. And then I switched to actually getting all my own photos because this was all free for them. Yeah. So I was uh -huh. doing all my own uh, photos, redesigning it all the time to get slicker and easier and more understandable. And then I thought, well, I could do this to other groups. So I started doing it to other wildlife groups. And then I started doing training for uh, CIE when I discovered who they were. I thought, yeah. well, no one does any training on birds. So I, I went in and done like, I think, three training courses. And then at the same time, I phoned you up as a cold call in Scotland. That's and right, within yeah, yeah. 15 minutes of talking to you, you'd booked me to do a four-day residential course in Scotland, having never That's met right. me. Yeah. And that was like, that was fantastic. It was real good, really good experience, great fun. And it kind of like snowballed from there. So I get calls about doing training, you know, and sometimes it's just small one-offs and sometimes it's a bit longer. And sometimes it's regular intervals and that sort of thing. So... That was how that happened. And at the same time, 
uh, I was trying to develop doing tours and guided walks myself. And I discovered that if I, if a local park or a borough says to me, oh, can you put on a guided walk? It was much easier. I'd pay them, a, charge them a fixed fee, and then they would arrange for how many of people they wanted to turn up. Yeah. And when I was doing that, there was a lot of interest in doing dawn chorus walks. So okay. obviously a dawn chorus in May could be like 4.30 in the morning. So I was yeah, doing them at like yeah. 4.30 and they would get like 10 people turn up. 12 okay. would book, 10 would turn up. And I said, well, to be honest, I said, why don't we go for 5 a.m.? One is that sounds psychologically, that's not so bad. 5 a.m. is still the morning. 4 a.m. Yeah. is night. Yeah. And they were getting fully booked straight away. So I'd do all these dawn chorus stuff at 5 a.m. You miss the real juicy dawn chorus, but you still get the, all the birds singing. You can point it out to Joe, every, everyone, all the members of the public, and they still have a really good time and they enjoy it. But it would be fully booked. I'll have like 26 people turn up. And one time in Holland Park, I think I had about 30 people turn up. And it was torrential rain. So I handed out my big brawlies out of my car. People were going around holding it up. It was like the first 40 minutes, barely anything was singing. As soon as the rain stopped, everyone went mad. And like all yeah, the birds yeah, were singing. Uh, it was yeah. a corny hour, calling. Everyone got so excited. So, it's, you know, they're the, the branches in which I do. And obviously, I go out and take lots of pictures and sound recordings, and they all add to my training and also to my knowledge and understanding the birds as well. So uh, I'm, I'm always nervous looking at your pictures, all right, because I know you travel all over the place, but uh, that's a pretty good honey buzzer there, yeah? Perfect, yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. goodness for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there thinking that's a honey buzzard, but I, but I just watch it's not something from overseas that I don't know or whatever. Yeah, no, that's a lovely, lovely shot that is. Yeah. Um, I just thought I'd put that in because anybody watching this might want to know what the what the bird species are and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I mean that's an absolutely beautiful male honey buzzard. It's got the lovely yeah. blue head on it, the really yeah. strong dark or dark carpal patches and you yeah. can see that the the secondaries after that very dark terminal bar really nice and clean looking as well yeah. so, i mean it was that was a that was a bird i was working with turnstone ecology and the deserts of the middle east okay. and uh, we would go and do vp counts from various spots and we turned up at this one place and uh, i'd gone off to say relieve the system and as i was coming back i shouted out because this honey buzz had coming in and it just came in across the desert, circled right over my head. I only took a few shots and I just grabbed my camera out of my bag. I didn't even really know what settings it was on, went blam, blam, blam. And then it would drifted off. And yeah. that's one of the photos. And it's oh, just wow. a magical shot. Absolutely. It's looking down right at me. Yeah. It's like, Hello, head, DDL. It's got its head tilted ever so slightly. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about your photography. Um, yeah, I mean, you're pretty big on your photography. And if people go onto your website and also your Instagram, uh, they can they can see lots of your amazing photographs either on the website or uh, Instagram. As as I said, I, I, I suppose a silly question. Um, you know, people that are into you know birding, ornithology, etc. They, they go down different routes. I mean, you get people that are kind of they see themselves as raptor specialists. You get people that are very good visually, but they couldn't tell the, the difference between a chaffinch and a great tip for argument's sake, mm -hmm. uh, acoustically. Um, you've got people that do the sound recording. Uh, you've got people that are more into photography. I mean, you must spend an awful lot of time taking an awful lot of photographs to get some of the crackers that you've got. 
which isn't necessarily these ones, although these are crackers, but I was looking at just stuff earlier today and there's just so many to choose from at the end of it. I just decided just to take a screen print of, of part of your website. Uh, so what got you into that? Was it just a natural progression or did you get, did you evolve uh, into it or did you just wake up one morning, go down to Jessup's and buy thousands of pounds worth of gear and that was you? <laughs> How no, did that happen? It was a little stint. So one autumn, a little stint. Okay. A little stint. So one autumn, uh, my dad took me to Walton on Nays, and Walton on Nays is like it's got these big cliffs and loads of uh, bushes and stuff, and the cliffs yeah. drop down, and there's like two little like saline lagoons before you get to the the point that goes out into the distance. Yeah. And on one of these little lagoons was a little stint, okay. and it was so close. It was like wandering around at our feet. I had my dad's little compact, like, you know, them tiny little flat cameras you used to get back yeah, like in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. I was chasing it, trying to take pictures like this. Right, now just look, bear in mind, some people watching this may not be birders, okay? Yeah. So a little stint is a very small wader. It's probably about the size of what? A little bit bigger than a house sparrow, maybe? No. Yeah, yeah, no, small, small like a house sparrow. Being about yeah, house sparrow, so, yeah. But it looks a little bit like, I mean, this isn't a little stint down here. I don't know what no. this is. Actually, Unless a sand lover. Okay, that's why I don't know what it is. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> a, but, but it's this kind of bird, but it's small, okay? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so right, on, the, so on the little stint, it it's got like a V down the back of white yes. lines along the feathers, which is really yeah. distinctive. These breed up like in the Arctic tundra and obviously up in the Arctic tundra, they don't see any humans. So when they come down and they start migrating, you kind of get very close to some of these young Arctic tundra species because they don't know what a human is. And, you know, if you don't threaten them, they may sit there. So it was just feeding right in front of me, probing away in the mud. And I was really enjoying it. And I was like, damn, my dad's camera. And I was like, he then told me about you can get a DSLR because this is the old film days okay. and that you stick different lenses on. It gives you different magnifications. So I saw in Argos, they had a Practica camera that came with a 50 mil lens and a 135 lens. And I think there was a, I could get a times two convert for like a tenner. Okay. But okay. it was 99 pounds and 99 pence in Argos. So I only had like, I think about 10 pounds saving. So I said to my, I said, dad, can you and grandpa and my mum all chip in to help me get that. And then I'll pay you out of all my pocket money for the next year. So I think I ended up with about 50 quid and then no pocket money for the whole year to have okay. these, this camera. And then he, my dad used to pay for the film. So I started with black and white film, then I expanded, then color became cheap. So I was doing that. And then I carried on with this and I bought an old, I bought a Russian uh, mirror Sorry. lens. Okay. So oh, then sorry. I was using that, okay. which was great fun. Okay. And then I fell out of it when I went to college. And then I think I went to, I was going on holiday to Tunisia uh, with my girlfriend at the time. And I bought a new Nikon camera that was again film, but I got a bit better lens. And that was great fun. And so then it kind of like built again through the, the film stage. And I, that was like the mid 90s. So I was always taking film pictures all the time. And then I was got an attachment from a telescope as well, which was great fun to play with. So that yeah. carried on going. And then all of a sudden, DSLRs came out digital and I bought my first one. And when you look back, it was dreadful compared to what you can get now. But it was great fun because it meant you could take the picture there and then look at the screen and actually see what you're taking. Yeah. In the old days, 
you took like 12, like 24 pictures or 36 over maybe a couple of months, sent them off, couldn't remember any of your camera settings, came back and thought, well, these are rubbish. What happened here? Yeah, aye. You, you know? stick them in to boot the chemist or whatever. That's and you, it. Go, you, you go back three days later and yeah, you, get all yeah. your, you get all your snaps. And, yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> it, it, it built from there. And then obviously having the digital camera meant that I could upload it onto a computer very easily, produce lovely PowerPoint presentations, my first website were all designed from all my own photos. And so it really just grew from there. And it's like, you look at this range of photos and I've got like a male house sparrow chirping away at um, Tower of London. And then I've got a great Christie Greed that I took in Victoria Park. You see the really lovely red eye and it's got a perch fish in its mouth. And when when I was leading that walk and I took this picture and it basically was feeding just a few feet away from us, you could not fail to get a nice picture. I sent it off to the biodiversity officer, John Archer, from Tower Hamlets. And he said, that's interesting. I said, why is that interesting? He said, well, it's not going to be in fish in that lake. (laughs) So they they drained the lake to make repairs to it, filled it back up with fish, uh, filled it up with water, didn't put any fish in. And all of a sudden, there's perch, young perch in there, which is a great crested group. And obviously, if you've got great crested groups, they've got to be feeding off some fish from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, the photography is a great aspect of it. And it's really... I do enjoy taking the pictures, but I'm mostly thinking about if I take this picture, how can I use that for work? You know, how can I illustrate breeding? How can I illustrate displaying? How can I illustrate some identification feature? How can I illustrate, I don't know, um, different molting the feathers or like with the robin, you know, a nice autumn robin that's very sort of like gray around the edges. This is meant to be more the continental race sort of thing, you know, and the, the yellow wagtail, I'd say I recorded it singing at the same time so I can produce the sonnet, the, the sound and the actual bird to compare the two. So I've always got like this mind on me about how I can use my photos for work. It's not just taking a picture of a beautiful bird. It's like, how can I utilize that? Can I put that on Instagram and say, no, it's a coloring combination and no, it's a missing feather here or this is a breeding bird or when I'm going to do a walk and I say, here's a great crested grouper took at Victoria Park. The next one's on Saturday, which is actually this Saturday is my first walk back at Victoria Park. So that's how I got into it. And I do really enjoy taking pictures and I do think about what I'm taking. What does it illustrate? Because sometimes I like a real nice side on picture that illustrates the six features on how to identify a willow warbler. Kind of picture you would get in a field guide sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to uh, replicate, um, to be honest, you know, and obviously when I do a lot of my lectures, it's around bird identification, which I really enjoy. Some I got really into massively when I was younger. Learning. I remember my dad saying to me, he said, Oh, we're going to Dungeness at the weekend on coach trip. He said, How do you identify all the shearwaters? It's like, make sure what it looks like this. It's black above, white below, and the, the cap joins onto yeah. the body, and that's fine. And then it's a great shearwater, has a black cap distinct from the rest of the body, a dark belly patch. It's got white uh, end to the uh, upper tail covers, so you get distinction between the tail. And a quarry shearwater is similar, it's another large shearwater. And I went through all these features, and he was like, I remember him saying to me, why can't you observe your school books like that? And I was like, well, it's not as interesting, Dad. Yeah, yeah that's why. I but I don't suppose you've got many quarries and many great shearwaters still on that trip, did you? We saw nothing. We saw nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there were no shearwaters at all. But that, uh, that experience is etched in my mind. So yeah. like when I saw my first quarry shearwater off Madeira, I only saw it very briefly. I was like, quarry, uh, no, great shearwater it was. I was like, great okay, shearwater straight away. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. 
No, nice, nice birds. Yeah, I like. I, no, oh, yeah, she waters. Lovely, lovely to watch. Yeah. Ah, so beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. Oh, I've still got the word photographer up here. Okay, but this obviously <laughs> isn't. <laughs> uh, this isn't a photograph. This is an illustration. Um. So, you know, this is pretty high standard. Have you always been arty, or is this something you discovered later on in life? Um, no, I mean. Because... I, I was arty from a very young age yeah. and what happened was was we were seeing the birds and I had a little notebook and I wanted to draw little sketches of what I could see to help me identify them and which, I remember when I which, which to be honest for some rare species when you submit records having field sketches uh, especially before the age of digital cameras yeah that yeah. that would add a huge amount of weight to the credibility of the record yeah 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 yeah. In, uh, indeed uh, and that was like that scientific approach to how you identify the birds and so i would do these little illustrations of the birds and sometimes it was a briefest view and i just do a quick sketch of a head of a like red leg partridge and i wanted to kind of like record it in a very uh, memorable way and that's what the field sketches were about and then i used to do pen and ink afterwards so this was an arctic red pole i saw in Fawndon country park up in uh, the northeast section of the london recording area and so I, I drew it in the field. I made sketches on the rump pattern, the undertail cover pattern as well. All these important things, because when you draw in the bird, you draw it and then you go, I don't know what color the rump is. And I don't know what color the ear covers are. What's the pattern here? Because you haven't drawn it in, then you haven't seen it. You haven't yeah, recorded yeah. it, understood. And it yeah. really makes your knowledge massive. And I spent a year, I remember in Tottenham Cemetery in the spring and every willow warbler and chiff chaff I saw, I drew a picture of. Okay. Drew a picture every single time to look at like what the color of the bill was like, how strong the supercilium was, how long the primary projection was up beyond the tertials, that sort of thing. And it really stretched my knowledge on looking at individual birds and see how they varied to help me understand. Because the thing is, it's like, you know, people want to see rare birds and find these rare birds. But unless you know all your common stuff, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And like today, when I was training uh, my colleague Rob on how to identify turns, I said, learn all your common turn calls. Learn that, get used to that call. So when you hear that big, deep, heavy, like crack of like a sandwich turn, it stands yeah. out because there's a big old crack as they come over. And you're like, what? Where's that big thing? And then yeah. like the little turns is much softer and weaker kind of call, very much high pitched, which really stands out. And yeah. it's like when I was on my last trip in the Middle East in the spring, I was in Bahrain and we were looking for Saunders turns. It's like we found two. And as soon as they called, I was like, my God, that is so different to a little turn that will stand out like a sore thumb instantly. Okay. Even okay. though their plumage is quite similar, you need to be close, the call was just so easy to pick up on. Yeah. So it meant yeah. like when I was, I remember being in uh, uh, another country in the Middle East recently, and we were looking out uh, lots of stuff, and we noted that there were little turns. As soon as I heard a Saunders turn call, I was like, Saunders turn calling because it's yeah. so different to the little turn. I'd only heard my first one like oh, two weeks before then, but it's etched in my memory how different it is from the little turn. It's really understanding that. And drawing the birds really helped me appreciate what I was seeing in the field. And when you try to pin and ink it and make a really nice copy, you go, hold on a sec, I, I didn't make a note on what the feet colour were. What feet yeah. colour? I can't draw the feet colour without knowing them. Yeah. And I remember reading Lars Johnson, who's a self-taught artist, yeah. And he said, draw what you see, not what you know. So it would be like, I look at the bird, primary length is like that. How, many, how are the tertials evenly spaced? Are they bunched up at one end? Or like, 
in a different place or is one of the tertials missing? What feathers has he got? Are there any imaginations on the wing? That sort of thing is looking yeah. at the individual patterns of the covers. And yeah. so it's really like sometimes I'd see a bird briefly and I only get half a sketch, sketch done because I haven't seen all the features. Yeah. But it really hums you in on looking at a bird and seeing what you see. And, you, you know, people want to do this. Start off with all your common stuff. Draw a sparrow in your garden. Draw the blackbird. Look at the, the male blackbirds now and see how disheveled some of them are. And then yeah, you wait until yeah. the autumn and you find all these blackbirds that are like got really dark beats and dull iris. They're the first winters. And if you look on the wing, you'll see that the, the, the covers are still juvenile. So they're really brown. And some of the yeah. flight feathers are still brown because they haven't molded out all their juvenile feathers. It's really paying that attention to these. Obviously, a photograph does the job done. But if you haven't got a camera, you've got to look with your eyes and really focus on what you're seeing. Yeah. You know, unlike when I was at Minsmere today, I found a curly sandpiper. And it wasn't because I took lots of pictures and went from, oh, there's a curly sand. I was scanning through the waders, looking at all the dunling. And I was noting how that there was like, there's about 100 adult dunling there. And there's only two juveniles so okay. far. So okay. they're going to be coming in later because obviously these are early juveniles just coming back. And then I picked up some sandling. And then I suddenly went, oh, there's a curly sandpiper. And I got really... And I've seen hundreds of curly sandpipe. And in Bahrain this year, I was in an estuary and there was uh, about six or 700 curly sandpipers. Wow. Okay. It was masses of curly sandpipers, Dunlin and Little Sins. Everywhere you look, there's like 30 curly sandpipers here. There was one bay where I counted 140 of Little Stint, And there's another bit where there's like 200 Dunlin. They were everywhere. And it was, I was deluged in them. And it was beautiful. Yeah. But when I saw this one at Minsby, I still got really excited. Yeah, yeah. I've seen thousands of some of these birds, but you know, when I sometimes see one that I haven't seen for a while or I pick it up in an odd place, I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cal the Sandpiper is a pretty decent bird to see in this part of the world. Yeah, it's that yeah, something yeah. that yeah. it's that something that you would see every day. And yeah. uh, they don't breed in the British Isles. I mean, they're just passing through, aren't they? So yeah, uh, you have this kind of uh, opportunity round about this time of year and going forward uh, to see them. And yeah, I haven't seen curly sandpaper that often. Um, and it's always been uh, Minsmeer, Titchwell, yeah. places like yeah. that, you know, yeah. uh, but probably what less than 10 in my entire life. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. say, but then I don't live uh, close to places where I would necessarily see these things. Mm. Uh, but, but, you know, do you plan to do anything with your illustration? Uh, work. I, mean, I, I used to do a lot of painting. This, this looks to me to be pretty professional standard. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the stippling effect I was using there would take hours. So that one illustration probably took me 10 hours to do or something like that. Wow. And I was developing my painting and I have been getting back into my painting trying to do that. But I, and my ideal goal is to actually produce my own field guide. And I'm kind of thinking, do I spend the next five years brushing up on my painting skill to get to an acceptable level to be able to make my own field guide to illustrate the birds in exact way I want to illustrate and talk to people about? Or do I just sign up with some other artists to get them in? I, I want to do it all myself. Yeah. That's my gut reaction is I want to do it all myself. Yeah. But that's like a long project because I want to do a field guide just for the UK. So people yeah. have a small field guide that's actually pocket size. We'll get back to the pocket size illustrations. The covers like a male it will go male, female, eclipse, and then one in flight, like two yeah. in flight. And that's yeah, it. Male and female, yeah. Yeah, you know, not a lot of text, but like a, very concise because with bird identification, you can use like three features on most birds to identify it straight away. And sometimes yeah. you only use okay. one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at most field guides, they list a whole number of features. And I want to go like, these are the three most important ones. Use these three 
you'll do 90% of the populate of the birds you see instantaneously. Like a black headed gull, I say to people, white leading edge on a small gull. White leading yeah. edge on a small gull, and you're done, black headed gull. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. And that covers you for 99% of all the ones you'll see. Uh, yep. Only if you're going to branch out into looking at stuff like Bonaparte's gold, you need to know a little bit more information. Yep. But yep. that's no, like the absolutely. rare exception. And it will get you through so much of your day birding. Because I say, I've still identified birds in like by one feature. So I was driving back from site with this, with this guy and I went, Sparrow. And he went, how did you ID that? I said, well, when it came up, it had a fairly narrow, longish tail. And the yep. wings were like sort of like broad. And yep. he squished them back. So a little bit more pointed, but they're still quite rounded and full so i knew it was a spiral constantly and he'd done the little flat flat glide and went down yeah yeah, yeah. so it's uh, it's seeing these little features and i want to really educate the masses in how bird id doesn't have to be really technical it can be very simple and you can really now a lot of your birds to begin with and as a beginner that's all you need to do and yeah you'll make mistakes but then i make mistakes all the time i make mistakes every day the only difference is is I'm a level where I will realize my mistakes and self-correct myself. But sometimes I don't, and other people point out the errors. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's fine. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. learning all the time and being present to that. And I'm just trying to, I'd love to be able to get it out to the masses how simple bird identification is really. Absolutely. And, uh, and you, can't, you can't explain it sometimes to people, but uh, and look, I'm, nowhere near your, I'm nowhere close to your standard. But... You just look at something in the distance and, you know, it's like, you know, black kite or grey heron or whatever it is, you know, you, you see something, it's maybe a mile away almost, you know, it feels like it's a mile away and you just instinctively know what it is, the way it's holding itself or what it's doing. And, and you kind of got to be a birder to kind of understand why it is what mm -hmm. you think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I remember uh, my kids, when they were young, I would see something like a grey heron half a mile away and I'd go, heron. And i go, oh, how do you know that? That's a lot of rubbish. You can't. Mm -hmm. and of course, you then drive closer to it and would fly over and that's exactly what it was. You know, it's just mm -hmm. so obvious it was going to be that from, you know, half a mile away, so to speak. So that was what was good about my lectures was it I was having to talk to people and explain to them how I identified a grey heron at a long distance. And I'd say, well, it's got these broad wings, it has this slow downward flight like that, and the legs yeah. dangling out the back, and that gives you the heron. And I remember pointing out someone a sparrow miles away, and I said, well, it's circling around, it's going flat, flat, glide, flat, flat, glide, flat, flat, yeah. glide. And that's what tells you it's a sparrow. There's these little juicy nuggets that as a beginner, you're like, you look in your field guide, you go, well, there's a million birds in there practically, or a million yeah. plumages. How do you work out what that is? And the briefest yeah. of views, it's trying to get that focus, them focused in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about sound recording a bit, um, oh, because yeah. um, there, are, there are not enough people that potentially would call themselves ornithologists uh, or maybe do not they maybe wouldn't call themselves ornithologists but they maybe do ornithological work mm. and they really haven't done that much in order to um use the acoustic uh, aspects of bird behavior mm. to help them with identification it's it's been visual and it's like acoustics has just been too difficult for them to try and get a grasp of. Mm. And 
I don't know if you find that with the people, maybe the people that uh, you pal about with and work with uh, don't fall into that category. But, you know, when I was heavily into birding, which I'm not now because bats kind of took over my world about 25 years ago. But when I was heavily into birding, most of the people I did birding with didn't really know any bird songs and calls. It pretty much was a 100% visual uh, interpretation so you're kind of quite unusual i would say because of the intensity and the thoroughness in which you have grasped the acoustic aspects of ornithology so i just wanted to talk a little bit about the backdrop to that how you got into it and sell the benefits to somebody of why it's really really important mm. uh, to know different bird songs and calls and stuff yeah yeah, so in the early days, it was me and my dad wandering around and he was very good on the audio and I was very good on remembering the visual. So it was a very good pairing. And then when I hit 16, I was like branching out on my own and my dad wasn't birding so much. And I remember going out and thinking, I don't know my bird calls. So at 16, I had to really start learning them. And then when I was in my 20s and I started doing these lectures, I was trying to, I was taking recordings of CDs and playing them and I was going, these are dreadfully tinny and they don't sound very good and they sound a bit sort of like polished up too much. I did not like them at all. So I then started buying bits of digital recording equipment. So I bought a remembered that I had in my, that used to dangle in front of me that recorded a 10 second loop. And then I'd press record on a bird. And of course, going from here to here sounded like thunder. So I had to keep calling to get a good recording. So some of these recordings yeah. I still got. And then I moved on to using a digital uh, a mic, shotgun mic, and a little digital recorder was great. But then when I read the Sound Approach book to Birding, which has loads of sound recordings, they had this big parabolic dish, and I was like, I need to get one of them. So straight away, I saved up, this is this is my baby. Straight away, uh, I got the money together, and I bought one of them. And then I went through loads of digital recorders to end up with my sound devices one, which is my, my beautiful baby. And it was really collecting sound recordings for my lectures was the first thing. Then I discovered the website Zeno Canto. So now I was trying to upload as many as I can. eBird now does it as well. So I try and stick my e recordings on there as well. And it's really, there's two things to it. One is that I want to get this information out there. So like uh, when I was in Bahrain, I realized that one person had recorded like four or five recordings of White Cheat Turn. So I set out to record White Cheat Turn. First of all, I wanted to be the second person to record White Cheat Turn and put it on Zeno Canto. Then I recorded a whole load when I was in Saudi Arabia. So then I thought, I'm going to sit my whole library onto Zeno Canto, which is what I did. And then it gives more people more research to do. And I remember I put on sound recordings of citrine wagtails that I took in Saudi Arabia as well. And this guy was doing some research in India and he wanted to know if I had any more recordings. So I put them all on there as well and sent them to him. So people are using the recordings, one, to learn, Two, to do more research on like subspecies and identification of these birds because if you're in a breeding ground you can pin it down to a subspecies and it, it's just great publicity even for just some of these countries like Saudi yeah. Arabia not everyone goes bird watching too but it's a magnificent country where you can see some hugely beneficial stuff but it yeah. also focuses you on learning and it's not just like uh, all the rare stuff you think that needs to be sound recorded I've recorded some rare stuff but some of the common stuff so I was in the Docklands and uh, in London, probably about 10, 15 years ago. And there was a great tit singing going, teacher, 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 teacher. And it was a dreadful song. And I thought, oh my God, this is the worst singing great tit I've ever heard. I'm going to sound record that. 
is variation number 78 of great tits song that people need to know that they can be really difficult to work at so i sound recorded it and then i thought i'd get closer then when i was getting closer i was thinking where is this great here? And I was looking in the bush. It became, this is just a Dunnock there. And the Dunnock opened his mouth and he went, teacher, 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 teacher. And I was like, what is this? This is crazy. This Dunnock is making a sound like a great tit. So wow. I put it, okay. okay. I sent it around to a few experts that I knew, including Magnus, uh, Magnus Rob. And he was like, I've never heard anything one like that. And then I heard another one doing that in a place in Orsett and it stopped really quickly. So I didn't get a sound recording. So then I've published it in the journal British Birds because again, I thought this needs to be documented. People need to see the sonogram. People need to see the link to Zeno Canto to know that that is out there. Yeah. So this is the, the great thing is that one, it trains you on listening to everything. So you really listen in detail. You don't just learn what's the, the call, what's the call of the, the, the cult here. That's you learn the variation in songs that they do, the variation in chords. Then you realize that juveniles make different sounds. And you think, well, I need to record that. And then you record one doing something really odd. You think, I need to record that and get that out to the wider, wider audience, which is what I try and do. The trouble is, if you make a lot of sound recordings, it's a lot of effort getting onto these things. Oh, yeah, yeah. It takes time. Yeah. But yeah. that's a real thing. It was to get recordings from my lectures. And I want a very specific recording. So, like, there's a great recording I got of a song thrush singing, and you can hear the footsteps of someone jogging by right okay <laughs> and then there's another great recording of a great spotted woodpecker i think it's great spotted woodpecker drumming in queenswood in north london and in the background you can hear intercity 125 going beep beep like that just goes off a few miles away but i want it to be more realistic so i have recordings where there's lots of birds singing at the same time to go well this is what it's like you know you're going to dawn chorus and you want to learn bird song that's the wrong thing to do because you're going to get someone like me pointing out 15 different songs and calls to you and you're going to come away to, going to my can't, mind can't with that if yeah. You don't, yeah so when yeah. i say to people go out in the winter when like there's only the one robin singing at the outside the pub yeah. by the lamppost you learn yeah. that and then that's your benchmark to move on so as you go into the spring and the odd birds start singing and getting louder you're slowly building up to have that repertoire to move forward but it's it's not like it ends it's not like no. bird ID never ends and learning sound never ends. It's always something new. There's another variation. There's another croaky gray heron to record and think, well, this sounds like a different subspecies in this area. What's going on here? So yeah. it's really collecting as much as you can to publicize as much for people to understand how good an error is, what the variation as well. So it's like I look at it on so many different levels. You know, like I want to record as many variations of white cheek tone because there's not that many. I want to, I've got like 11 recordings of sooty falcons that I'm waiting to get permission from the client to publish Yeah. because there's hardly any out there. Yeah. And then yeah. when I go back out into the Middle East, I'm going to record even more sooty falcons to have an even bigger library to then throw out there eventually and get out to the wider audience so they can then listen to more of this stuff understand and try like when i'm recording to make a note of which one's a juvenile which one's the adult calling so we get the difference between the two so they have that knowledge as well to help with identification to help understand all of this stuff so yeah. it's really important you know oh yeah totally. globally threatened species even stuff like uh pochard that you see on your lakes i've sound recorded them displaying in central london which is a really odd sound but you know we need to document this we need to document this this year to see that varies in 10 years time to see what's going on to see if there's a split between the common bocha because there's four different races we didn't realize i don't think there are by the way but it's that kind of thing <laughs> to gain that knowledge and to build up that library because the more we build the more we learn we have all this beautiful thing because if a species go extinct at some stage they can go oh 
DDL's got that nice recording of whatever it is in so-and-so, you know? But it's the stuff on your door, on the doorstep that you should really pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, you know, yeah. Everything is important. It's, it's stuff like, uh, well, look, just lying in your bed in the spring and you wake up and you hear a dunnock, a wren, a chaffinch, a robin, whatever it is in your garden. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I used to know birders that they wouldn't know what those things were. But, oh, but you just you, you just learn it a little bit at a time, a habit at a time. Um, if, if you try and learn 150 bird songs in a summer, you've got no chance. You know, it's, yeah. it's picking off the stuff that's maybe, well, chiff chaff willow warbler, that's the one I always go on about. Uh, two birds that are quite difficult to identify visually, mm. but as easy as pie to identify acoustically. I mean, you can't get further away from each other than Chiff Chaff Willow Warbler uh, song, for argument's sake. Um, and, and for me, because um, I'd been a birder, as you, from about the age, well, from the age of eight, and I didn't start getting into bird song and bird calls until I was well into my 20s. Mm. And that just totally changed my life. It just totally changed my whole perspective. And, and, I, and I started... All of a sudden, things that used to be difficult to encounter or difficult to see, or if you did see them, difficult to identify, all of a sudden there was a whole raft of things that then just suddenly became a lot, lot easier and a lot more interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, without a doubt, and the other thing is, is on a commercial side, Doing the consultancy business, you need to know all your breeding bird stuff to go into a winter uh, survey. Yeah, and I then get... on the birding side, it's like once you know so many calls and songs, it makes it so much easier. You know yeah. that when you walk through a big turn colony and something else calls, you go, "Oh, I think that's a roseate turn because it's called something differently." Or I remember, especially, yeah, but especially about... your typical woodland parkland breeding oh, bird yeah. survey, yeah. I get very nervous, uh, and, I'll, and I'll say this, uh, I'll get very nervous if I've got an ornithologist that doesn't know their, you know, let's call it your fairly common woodland garden bird songs, doing a breeding bird survey through parkland and woodland, because first of all, the bulk of the encounters that you're going to have that's going to give you what's there isn't based on what you're seeing visually, it's based on what you're hearing acoustically, and if you're not using an acoustic interpretation, you're probably then not documenting 50, 60, 70% of the birds that you may be higher. potentially encountering. Higher. You'd go higher, yeah, higher. Yeah, I'd, 90%, I'd, I'd agree. 90%. Yeah. 90%. And then even like on a winter bird survey, you know, knowing the call, that kind of twangy metallic call of a uh, yellowhammer enables you to pick them up as they fly over straight away so you can ID them. It's no longer a bird just flying over, bird spur. It becomes yeah. the yellow hammer in a second. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I get, get, get very nervous. But that. another thing that I've found, because obviously I've done a few breeding bird surveys in my time from a consultancy perspective, um, you do a, a typical breeding bird survey and 90%, I'm going to go 90% just to throw a big figure at it, but 90% of everything that you come across probably falls into song thrush, blackbird, robin, wren, dunnock, blue tit, great tit, cool tit. You know, it's like 90% of all of the birds that you've come across probably falls with 
across 10 species. Mm. So, it, you know, and then when you hear something and you think, oh my goodness, what the blazes is that? Mm. You know, that's the thing that you maybe focus on or you try and record or you try and get a visual on or whatever mm. just to then, you know, just to then improve yourself and you think, right, next time I hear that, I'll know that that's a white throat or a garden warbler or a black cap or whatever it happens to be for whoever it is that's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's good stuff. Obviously, I'm really big on this. And you you uh, introduced me to, well, you didn't introduce me to parabolics because I did try and make myself one when I was about 11 years old <laughs> with a with an old uh, lampshade that I covered in uh, sellotape. <laughs> oh, I wish I still had it because it was ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, so you introduced me to my second experience with a parabolic, uh, you know, setup, and that was that night when we did that night jar stuff uh, that we were talking about earlier. And I remember uh, I had the bat detector and I was recording some stuff, and you were carrying this about. And you kept saying, oh, do you want a shot? And I kept thinking, nah, nah, I don't want a shot. My heart was saying, I don't want a shot. I want to steal it off you. No, but, <laughs> <laughs> but and you kept saying, oh, do you want a shot? Do you want a shot? And I kind of kept kind of resisting. And then eventually, after we'd been there for a while, I thought, okay, I'll take a shot. And we had a night jar churring from about, I don't know, half a kilometre away maybe, maybe even further away from that than half a kilometre away. And I and I was picking it up with my ears. And then I put the parabolic on it and it was just like, wow, oh my goodness. This, you know, a spectacular experience. And I don't know if it's your expression or if you got it from someone else, uh, but I credit it from my perspective to you. Uh, you said it's binoculars for your ears. And that is it, 100%. It's like having a pair of 10 by binoculars on your ears and everything. You just feel that everything's next to you, don't you? And uh, it can be quite uh, interesting at times, yeah. Mm. Sorry, I've gone off on one there, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It's, It's beautiful, the first time you listen in. I remember being at one end of a field and right down the far end, I could listen to all the robins and blackbirds singing in the wood. I was thinking, this is great, you know? It wouldn't have been a great recording, but you can just hear so much further. It makes it really beautiful. So it's it's an amazing experience. Yeah, Yeah, but I've also noticed, because obviously I've used parabolics quite a lot now over the last kind of three or so years since we did that trip. And uh, yeah, it's... I mean, I, I could, we could do a whole session, I'm sure, just the two of us talking about things that have happened with parabolics. But I remember I was uh, out uh, early one morning, uh, somewhere down south. I was on an RSPB reserve, as it happened, and I turned this parabolic around, and all of a sudden I had somebody right next to me talking, right? And I absolutely jumped out of my skin. <laughs> and, and I took the headphones off, and this person that I'd heard that I thought was right next to me they were about 100 meters away but <laughs> I, was kind of like, oh. I was like oh my god it really shocked me because it's just getting that it just gives you a different perspective on the world it really does it gives you a very and it's the same with the birds um you're, you're kind of homing in on the parabolic and a bird but visually you're thinking like that bird must only be 
10 meters away from me. Mm-hmm. I kind of looking 10 meters, where's the bird, where's the bird? Because you're forgetting that what you're picking up is maybe 100 meters away from you, despite the fact that it sounds as if it's right next to you. So mm-hmm. it does take a bit of getting used to, yeah. It does. It's a great bit of kit. It's like it's my favourite bit of kit. I think. To yeah, be yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm, I'm absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll, so I got lots of stories. Though Aileen, uh, Aileen doesn't like being out with me when I've got the parabolic. Yeah. So when I first when I first got it, um, because we just go walk. Well, we would go walks at the weekend, but uh, she then started asking the question. This is when we were doing this that about book. I'd fancy going for a walk, and she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she'd look at me and she goes, are you taking that piece of equipment with you? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, a very, very funny story, right? We were walking around uh, Barons Hoch Nature Reserve, which is probably the closest RSPB reserve to where, to where I stay. And I had the parabolic. And she was getting a bit more used to it at this point. And there was this couple uh, coming towards us and uh, she was kind of thinking oh my goodness they're going to think my husband's a total geek and and they weren't birders or anything at least I didn't think they were and as the couple then passed I could see the guy he kind of was checking he was checking out my acoustic equipment okay and uh, <laughs> and I just thought he's interested he's interested and he was about five meters past us and then they turned around and they came back and they said is that a parabolic uh, acoustic setup you've got or whatever he called it at the time and I'm going yes and Aileen kind of just sank into the ground <laughs> with embarrassment anyway I did to him what you did to me that night doing the night charts the guy had the headphones on he had oh. the dish out yeah. His wife was thinking, oh, my God, what's going on? Aileen was thinking, oh, my God, what's going on? And this guy totally converted. <laughs> mm-hmm. anyway, amazing bit of kit, amazing bit mm-hmm. of kit. And once again, I want to say thank you because uh, you supplied an awful lot of the recordings that either I wasn't able to get myself or I didn't have time to get myself for the Is That A Bad Book and the... Uh, Thank you for that, David. You know, that was, uh, that no was problem. Something. My pleasure. All no, the pleasure. Anyway, let's talk about this. Also, an author. You had your first book published in 2018? Yeah, 2018. Yeah. yeah. What was that like? That must have been a bit of a buzz. Yeah. To, uh, to it was, it was then... a bit odd because um, uh, this uh, publisher, Graham, had got in contact with me and said that Stephen Moss had. Uh, suggested I would be the person to write a, a bird watching guide to the birds in the capital and I thought oh that's nice I've only met Stephen Moss a couple of times and he's like yeah, yeah ever so nice I thought, this is great what a great recommendation I didn't know the guy from Adam so he agreed to meet me after a black red start survey in central London so it was about seven in the morning yeah and he was going through it and he was a little bit quirky and I was like well, I don't know what's he like and he said oh, I'll send you a contract and we'll sign it and deliver and I was like oh okay I thought, well, I don't know him from Adam. I'm going to wait until the contract comes before I do anything. So I didn't hear anything for months. I thought, oh, okay, it's one of them things. It's like someone's phoning you up and saying, can you do surveys here? And you're like, yeah, I can. Here's my quote. And then you hear nothing. You're like, that's fine. You know, it just comes and goes. Goes with the job, innit? Yeah. So then September came along and I was just going off to Spurn for my first ever week there. 
bird observatory and I was like, really looking forward to it. And he sends me through the contract and goes, here's a contract. And he goes, um, uh, how's the book coming along? And I was like, oh, the book. <laughs> so I was like, right, before I reply to him, let's spend five minutes doing a draft. So I've done this draft in a spreadsheet about all the sites I've covered, who I need to speak to. Because I mean, some of the sites I know well already. But some of them I needed to meet my friends who are their local patches and go through what you see there and when and so forth. And so I've done this. Yes, I said, I've got a plan and pinged it back and I signed it in a few days. I said, I can't work on it until like, I think it was uh, November, early November, because I had a family trip. I was away on business as well. There wasn't a lot of time. So there's quite a lot of tight deadlines going on. So he said, OK, he said, I want your draft done by like february and i was like february well that's really quick i said right i'll have to do surveys in the morning write a book in the in the afternoon visit sites at weekends take photos arrange to meet people so i had this whole plan and basically i worked through my list on who i could speak to what ones i could write out my first i just pinged him over photographs my articles like that and i should do it he said he wanted these fillers so i've done these little fillers between each section of places to go pinged them all over to him and then it was like beginning of Feb end of February or whenever it was, I think it was the end of January. And he said, yeah, we've got enough for the book. So I was like, oh, great. I hadn't even really looked at the, the site of London and worked out if I'd done a nice even distribution. It was just like what I think of all the best sites and some of quirky places as well. Because I wanted it to have really classic places like rain and marshes. And then I wanted to have like little unknown places like uh, cold wood in North London as well. Very unknown little wood, great for breeding birds. I wanted all these odd things to put in there. So... I've done it all, and then I didn't hear anything from him. And then he said, I've got a draft. Can you go through it this week? And it was like April. So I was like, chock a block with surveys. I said, I can't do anything yeah. until the weekend. Yeah. I said, I'll get it done over the weekend. He's like, okay. So I had two 12-hour days of taking the whole book in its entirety, reading through it all, rewriting bits. Some of the bird photos were labelled out wrong. So I thought, I can't have that. If I have that mistake, I'll be in back. I won't be able to look at anyone ever again. So yeah. If there's a picture of a blue tit and it says house sparrow, I'll be like, oh, this isn't bad. That wasn't a yeah. mistake. Yeah. There was some in there. And then he'd written his own fillers in there, which I didn't like at all. So I rewrote everything. And then the first filler I'd done was only meant to be 200 words. And I wrote 800. And it was like, it needs to be short. And I was like, oh, shh. damn it. I thought, ah, oh, I, I need to watch. So I was then writing these things and I edited it down. So I've done 13 hour day on a Saturday and then a 12 hour day on a Sunday. I basically sat on my bed, just typing away all the time, furiously. Food and drink was being brought to me. I was like, oh, hello, and carry on. <laughs> so I'd done this all this weekend, sent it off to him. And then he said, oh, that's great. And then I think it was July, he said, first copy's coming. So I got sent this book of all these copies. He said, we're going to do some uh, book launches. So the first book launch was in this tiny little bookshop. I think it's called Ink 84 up in Highbury. And it was quite a trendy little bookshop. And I was meant to arrive at like five o'clock and I was meant to give my talk until six o'clock. And then there was going to be questions and answers for half an hour or something like that. I set off like two hours earlier for an hour to get the example time. I can then sit there. I can meditate for like 10 minutes before I slowly unpack my car, get everything out, be prepared, welcome people as they come in, be present. Of course, there's a massive uh, jam on the Dartford Bridge. An hour and a half later, uh, I've only gone like a half a mile. So I've done oh, no. this detour, went all the way around the back doubles, and I got there at the last 20 minutes when the when thing was meant to finish, and my publisher had got up and, and, and was just talking about birding in general. I came in like a sweaty mess, running down the road with my laptop. We then had to load it onto the ladies' uh, Mac, 
yeah, because I couldn't get my connector to work to her projector because it was up in the ceiling and all sorts of things. And then I was like, bam, okay, you ready to go? So then fired off my first presentation, talking about all the birds and had all these questions and everyone was really happy. I signed loads of copies and it was done. That was the first one and the worst one. Okay. But it was only worse because I turned up so late. And then I'd done about another half a dozen. Okay. And I remember doing Daunt's books up in Hampstead and I led a walk for them. And the woman was like, this is great. She said, can you come back like in two months time and do a whole presentation one evening? So I'd done this presentation. And uh, my friend had come with his wife and there was actually two Daunt's bookshops in the area. So he'd gone to the wrong one. Then they had to leg it up. And I was going through and I was showing pictures of all these wood pigeons because I talk about the mass migration of wood pigeons through London and the highest count is like something like 54,000 birds in one day. And the late, this lady at the back said, how do you count them all? And I said, oh, well, we usually take the first group and you go, well, that's 10. If that's 10, that's 50. If that's 15. Then this group is like 150. Then you know, if that's 150, the next group is 400 and so forth and use it as a benchmark to count everything. And she went, but what's the scientific version? I went, that is the scientific version. Wait, the only way you can do it. I said, the only other way is taking photographs and you got to hope the whole flock is all spread out to get that one image. And then you can send it off and put it through software, count it individually. So we were like arguing with her. I was almost arguing with her and we were laughing and people were joking and it was, it was great fun. But they were all kind of like, like that. They were all very different in their own way. And, yeah. you know, no two of my presentations are ever the same. And it was the same presentation I was doing, but every time I done it, I was like, I need to replace these photos and put in these sound recordings. So it was always changing and evolving. So you go to the very yeah. first yeah. one and come to the last one in month two, two different beasts completely. Wow. So it was really, I really enjoyed doing that. Although my signature, when I went to uh, Stanford's in central London, it was like, they said, can you sign these books? So I signed like 10 books and people came along and said, oh, can you say it to, send it to John and all the rest. And then um, she gave me a pile of about 50 books to sign. Oh, that was hard work. My hand hurt. My, my signature went from fairly clear to like a line, basically. And I understood why when you get these authors public uh, signatures, it's like a scribble and you're like, hey, that's book number 782. Yeah. He's had to sign. He's exhausted. It's just like, Bruh! That's it. Yeah. So that was good. This was in uh, Tate Modern, and I found my book, and I show my. It's got my family to take a picture of me, which was it was great. It's going to a bookshop, cool. and it's there, and you're like, oh yeah. That's so, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. It was good fun to do. I did enjoy it, and it was only afterwards people said to me, "No, four, four months is a very quick time scale to do a book in. Like, yes. given two years, I'm like, two years? Yeah. Blimey, yeah. I'll be sitting back having a cup of tea for the first year. I'd wait for the last six months and then do it all." <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't feel the same. It wouldn't feel right. Kind of thing. I, I well, obviously, I've been involved uh, in a few books, and yeah, four months. That's that's really really quick. <laughs> Based on my experience, <laughs> I had no option. I couldn't back out of it. I couldn't say no, and I didn't want no, to no, deliver I've, the book late. Yeah. I was like, it's got to be punctual. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, you've, yeah, I mean, you've you've got to stick to the deadlines and stuff. That that's my opinion. If you, if you've if you've come to an agreement and you said it's going to be ready by a certain date, then it has to be ready from a professional, credible point of view. That's what you should be doing. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Wow. And then I just wanted to talk uh, briefly about this. Uh, you've you did this uh, series on YouTube called Bird Brain. Uh, bird brains rather yeah. and you did this with another gentleman uh, you can mention in, in a moment and 
quite quite enjoyable. I mean, I've I've watched I've watched I don't think I've watched them all. I've watched most of them, and it's really good, informative, engaging, entertaining stuff. And I would thoroughly recommend anybody goes and checks it out. But how did you find this? Because this is, you know. This was what uh, two years ago you started doing this, I think. No, it was last summer. Was that last summer? Was that it was a year last ago? summer? It happened yeah. all through lockdown. Yeah. So this is Lev Parikian, and he yeah. was a birder and then got involved in other stuff and then came back into it a few years ago. And he wrote a book about it. And okay. he contacted me because I think he was on my walk around Horniman Gardens on a dawn chorus and said, Can you take me out for a day? So I'm in his November chapter of his book. Okay. where we went out for the day and it was great fun and he wanted to see 200 birds in one year which he just managed to do so um we went out and it was good fun and then we think uh, we done like a book launch thing together he was launching one book so he gave like a bit of a talk and then i spoke about my book and we signed lots of copies and sold a few and it was good fun and then he said let's do a youtube thing i was like yeah fine so we started doing this thing where we're talking about like one or two species of birds and how we identify them and it was just it was like it was like talking with you. It was very relaxed. It was quite friendly. It was quite easy going. And I was happy with how it went. But we kind of like moved on to different things. So we have talked about doing it again, but it's not really come to fruition because he's been in the middle of writing another book and I've been here, there and everywhere with my survey. So, you yeah, know, yeah. it's probably something we'll come back to, but it was it was good fun. It's entertaining and it gets the information out there. Really, yeah, well, I'll say, you know, I've, I've watched them and... I love the way that it comes across and it's it's just you guys being yourselves talking about birds uh, but being relative a lot more focused on certain things for example than what you and I have been today okay moving yeah. from honey buzzard to little stint to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to HS125s and great spotted woodpeckers but, but but it's very very good and it's the kind of stuff that even uh, as an experienced birder uh, I'm watching yeah. this and yeah I'm thinking yeah I know that I know that I know that and I go oh wow I never thought about that or yeah. that was something I never uh, appreciated before and stuff like that so mm -hmm. I think I think there's something in there for everybody say uh, and even even if you're a very experienced bird but just listening to a couple of guys talking about birds the way that you guys do it is you know good 20 minutes of time well spent uh, i would say yeah so i hope you hope you I hope you come back and you do more uh yeah 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 it'd be good it'd be good to do that yeah okay goodness um uh, i think we've broken the record for the longest talking bat and you know david it doesn't surprise me because <laughs> this is this is just what we're like and <laughs> and and i've pretty much uh on this session uh, committed uh, the cardinal sin from the point of view that I've told maybe two or three stories about myself when we should have been talking <laughs> about you. Um, so I apologise to any listeners for me doing no that. Worries, and, no worries. Makes uh, it more interesting. It, well, yeah, but it's kind of hard to talk to you about all this stuff. And so, But there are so many more stories. As you were talking, I kept thinking, oh, I've got this story, I've got that story, I've got this story, but I kept kind of thinking, no, this is David's interview. I've really got to try <laughs> and just let him put himself across without, yeah. without it. Uh, without I, I was trying to limit the number of stories I gave and how long they were as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to break a more over. Right, David, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. I, as always, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you anyway.
and it's just so good that we've actually recorded a conversation of the two of us uh, talking about stuff. Yeah. And I've learned some new stuff about you today, despite the oh. fact that I've known you for so long. There's a few stories you've told me there and a few things about yourself that I didn't know before. Uh, so that's that's been really nice for me personally. It's been a total pleasure, a total pleasure, yeah, David. Same here. Uh, same here, wonderful. Okay. And uh, don't go away. We'll talk for a couple of minutes after I stop the recording. Uh, but for the time being, uh, just say goodbye and wave goodbye to everybody. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original videoed session. The full version, including video, is available via Bettability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to bettability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.